The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine and around the world, and we dissect the essay written by Ukraine's top general, Valery Zelushny, that sent out his view of the full-scale war with Russia and how to win it. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 2nd of November, one year and 250 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, and former Tank Commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So let's start in the east of Divka. Now then, Ukrainian military officer or spokesperson saying... Russian forces are trying to regroup and recover their losses near Yavdivka before continuing with attempts to encircle the town in the east of Donbass. There's now Russia's pushing to the north and south, not yet been able to knit those two points together. But Alexander Stupin, spokesperson for Ukraine's Tavria military command, said the enemy continues to try to encircle Yavdivka, but now not so actively. Enemy is trying to regroup and recover losses in order to attack further. When they say when he says recover losses, we don't know if they're actually trying to get the vehicles back and the personnel, if you like, but they've shown no interest in them before. But the vehicles back to to repair them and use them again, or when he says recover losses, I don't know if, if it's a language thing and he means just kind of put aside the losses they've endured and accepted and keep going. But still in, incredibly violent around Divka. Now, elsewhere, Russian drone attack. Uh, in central Ukraine, hit an oil refinery, uh, knocked out power for the area. This is the fire, a uh, fire of the Kremenchuk refinery. It's been hit many times. Um, Philip Pronin, the head of Poltava region's military administration, says the fire was quickly put out. No idea of the extent of the damage yet or casualties. Uh, and elsewhere, it was part of um, a widespread aerial attack last night. Ukraine's Air Force said air defences had shot down 18 of 20 drones and a missile fired by Russia. Sticking on the missiles, UK's uh, defence intelligence brief from this morning says Russia has likely lost at least four long-range SAMs, surface wave missile systems, SAM launchers, over the last week. So a few days ago, 26th of October, Russian media reported that three SA-21 launchers had been destroyed in the Luhansk region. And then Ukrainian sources said an additional Russian air defence um, uh, systems were lost in Crimea. We know that Russia has long prioritised high-tech, long-range SAMs, part of its sort of network, its integrated sort of air defence strategy. But UKDI Defence Intelligence are saying the recent losses highlight that Russia's integrated air defence system continues to struggle against modern precision strike weapons and will likely increase the already significant strain on remaining systems and operators. 
They finish by saying there is a realistic possibility that as Russia replaces the destroyed systems in Ukraine, it will weaken its air defences in other operational areas. I think that's fairly obvious, but I don't think Finland's going to invade anytime soon, or China. So not sure that if it's at all relevant bar the actual what's happening to the kit themselves. But speaking of the far, far east, Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader, is thought to have sent one million artillery shells to Russia in exchange for help on his satellite program. This is coming from South Korea, the South Korean Intelligence Agency. So Seoul's National Intelligence Service said that North Korea had sent enough artillery rounds to, to Russia to last for a couple of months. I think so. a mere 500,000. I think that's a little bit toppy. I don't think they, well, obviously it depends how much they want to use up. That's certainly nothing like the rate they've been achieving in recent months, but that's because there's been a paucity of ammunition. So possibly, but hey, we don't know how and when they'd use them, but they're assessing that they've sent a million. So Yu Sang-boom, South Korean MP, after a closed-door briefing with the with his country's National Intelligence Service, said North Korea is running its munition factories to full capacity to meet the demand for military supplies to Russia, even mobilising residents and civilian factories to make ammunition boxes. So similar... I mean, we see these signs across Russia with, as James Kilner has reported before, bakeries now doing, uh, churning out drones, and we see plants, supermarkets being told to, to munitions factories. It can work in the short and possibly the medium term, but, you know, it does have a hit on the economy if that's what you're doing. Not that Kim Jong-un would care about that. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, Francis, can I go to you then for the diplomatic and political news? Of course, later we'll talk about General Valery Zeluzhny's essay and and interview with The Economist, which I think will be the main focus of this podcast. But first, uh, just your roundup, please, of some of the stories you've seen in the diplomatic and political space. Certainly. Well, thanks, David. The words war fatigue seem to be on everyone's lips recently, and that point has been drummed home starkly by the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney, unwittingly telling a pair of pranksters and possibly Kremlin agents posing as African diplomats that European leaders are tired of the war and want to broker a deal with the Kremlin to end it. James Kilner has been looking into this. She made the remarks during a phone call she believed she was having with a senior African Union official when she was in fact speaking with two prolific Russian pranksters and suspected Kremlin agents. During the conversation with Vovan and Lexus, she said European leaders wanted a way out of the 20-month war in Ukraine. I see that many are tired, she said. To tell the truth, perhaps we are close to the moment when everyone will understand that we need a way out. It is, suffice to say, hugely embarrassing for her and unfortunate for Kiev in terms of the timing of the release of this prank call. As we discussed yesterday, a general cloud of despondency has descended on Ukraine matters of late. Speaking about the counteroffensive during the call, Miss Maloney said it didn't change the destiny of the conflict. So everybody understands that it really could last many years if we don't try to find some solutions. In that, she is correct. And we'll be discussing some of those solutions later, building on our conversation with George Barros from the Institute for the Study of War yesterday. Miss Maloney's office confirmed that the recording was genuine and had taken place on September the 18th, ahead of meetings on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in New York. That was the same session that I was at. The Prime Minister regrets having been deceived, it said. Now, 
Suffice to say, the remarks do play into the hands of the Kremlin, which is counting on Kyiv's Western allies growing fatigued by the war and thus reducing their support. This week, Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, warned that the Kremlin was banking on Gaza-Israel diverting Western support away from Ukraine, something we have discussed also on the podcast. As an aside, I think the term war fatigue is a bit of a misnomer. There's no fatigue when things are going well, it seems. Rather, we're seeing a Western-wide wobble following the counteroffensive not delivering what was hoped. So fatigue is just a convenient term for lack of resilience. But I digress. Evidently, that gloom articulated by many politicians in Congress is beginning to filter down to the American public. In a new poll, more than 40% of Americans say the US is doing too much to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia. It's a new Gallup survey assessing Americans' shifting sentiments on the US role in the Ukraine crisis. 41% of Americans overall say the US is doing too much, which has risen from 29% in June this year. Meanwhile, 33% say the US is doing the right amount, a drop of 10% from 43% in June of this year. As ever, one has to treat polls with a degree of caution. But nevertheless, I think it does speak to a change in tone being articulated at the very top of American politics with regard to Ukraine at the moment. But it's not all despair. In a signal of just how much the war has changed the European political landscape in Ukraine's favour, Ukraine's foreign minister, uh, Kuliba, has said today that Kyiv is confident about its quest to open EU membership talks this year, touting reforms it made in the face of the Russian invasion. He was speaking ahead of a conference on Europe in Berlin, and he told reporters there that Ukraine was on track to fulfil its obligations to open negotiations on a session. We are optimistic, he said. We did a lot of reforms and we passed legislation necessary to meet and to implement the recommendations. So we are looking forward to the presentation of this report and I have reasons to believe that it will pave the way to the decision of the European Council on opening accession talks with Ukraine. It will almost certainly take many years for Ukraine to be considered a viable member of the bloc. But Kyiv are so keen on this because of the symbolic and strategic boost it would give the country, planting a flag clearly in the Western fold in a manner that shows it has cleaved itself away from Moscow's shadow. So that's why we keep returning to this theme and, of course, why Kyiv is so so eager to drum that home. Obviously, we need to talk in detail and in depth, I think, about the interview with General Valery Solutiony and the essay that's also been published. What I propose we do then is, Francis, would you like to give us your thoughts and just summarise what he was saying and the arguments he was making? And then it would be very good, I think, to get Dom and Hamish's response and thoughts about it. So, Francis Sternley. Sure. Well, on the face of it, at least, I think this should be considered one of the most important essays published in the war. The commander of Ukraine's armed forces apparently laying out publicly the strategic reality at this moment of the conflict and what Kyiv needs to win. It's not overly long, about nine pages of A4, but it does feel like it was written by the man himself. It has a personalised syntax with the Russian Federation and Putin deliberately uncapitalized as if to undermine them. The Economist has published an abridged version, but we've all read it in full this morning. Dom and Hamish are going to break down in more detail the military aspects, but if I were to summarize its top lines and the interview you mentioned that accompanies it, I'd start with its stark warning that there will be no quick breakthrough 
in a counteroffensive against Russia. Just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate, he tells The Economist. It would require a massive technical leap to break the deadlock. It will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. He goes on, if you look at NATO's textbooks and at the maths which we did in planning the counteroffensive, four months should have been enough time for us to have reached Crimea, to have fought in Crimea, to return from Crimea and to have gone back in and out again. But he goes on, when his troops got nowhere, he wondered if it was the commanders, so he changed them, but that didn't have any success. Then he says he read a book published in 1941 by a Soviet major general who analysed the battles of the First World War called Breaching Fortified Defence Lines. And he says, and before I even got halfway through it, I realised that is exactly where we are, just because, like then, the level of our technological development today has put both us and our enemies into a stupor. As a consequence, in the essay, he lays out in more detail how the war is bogged down in what he calls this positional form and what is required to break out of it, namely gain air superiority, breach mine barriers in depth, increase the effectiveness of counter-battery and electronic warfare and create and prepare the necessary reserves. He also says that, and I quote, it should be taken into account that the widespread use of information technology in military affairs and the rational organisation of logistic support play a significant role in finding a way out of the positional form of warfare. The need to avoid transitioning from a positional form to a manoeuvrable one necessitates searching for new and non-trivial approaches to break military parity with the enemy. Now, we'll discuss exactly what the commander says is required in a moment. But first, I just want to mention two other interesting aspects of this. The essay is infused with historical understanding, first of all, saying that the experience of the Russian-Ukrainian war testifies to the actualization of almost forgotten concepts, such as the accumulation of stocks of missiles and ammunition and other logistics assets. After the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the Warsaw Pact states, this concept lost its relevance. But today, it has become important both for the enemy and for our state. It comments too on how Russian great power chauvinism multiplied by sick imperial ambitions gradually turns the military conflict it began in the centre of Europe into an armed confrontation between democratic and authoritarian political regimes with the prospect of its spread to other regions of the planet with similar geopolitical models. Brackets, Israel and Gaza Strip, South and North Korea's Taiwan and China, etc. But it also, I would argue, it's really a political document. One time to emphasise that Ukraine can't win this war without an elevation of support, including greater technology and logistical support. That will be a bitter pill to swallow in some Western capitals, including Washington, who have pledged more advanced weaponry gradually over the course of the war, including some that, of course, proven highly significant, such as the Atakams, but without breaking through the Russian lines. Some officials might feel that these are excuses for the military's own failures, although given Zeluzhny's apparent candour, I think that would be unfair. One last thought. How much should we trust this document? Why give the enemy such insights into your strengths and weaknesses? Does it paint the full picture? Kievan has proven itself very adept at leverage, so one wonders whether there might be more to this than meets the eye. 
But regardless of that, there's much more to say about it. And it is a notable document indeed, one worthy of discussion now and in the long term. Well, thank you, Francis, for your summary and thoughts there. Let's go round the, the table then. Dom Nichols, what did you make of Zeluzhny's essay and thoughts? Well, my overriding impression was, as Francis has mentioned there, I was surprised that it existed, quite frankly. I mean, it does go into very great detail, which I'm not going to go into here because there's not, just not time, but it does go right down to the the platform level. It lists the kind of equipment that, that they were after, that they were seeking. Conversations that I would expect to be happening in the Ramstein process where partner nations gift military equipment and pledge military equipment and, and elsewhere behind, behind closed doors. But that's the point, behind closed doors. I was surprised to see it in the open. I'll come back to what that might signify, I think, for my final thought later. But I'm partly minded that it might be some super secret double bluff. The word tanks, and I've gone through it again, I can't find tank anywhere. And that was obviously really high on the on the wish list uh, a few months ago. Now, maybe he's trying to boil these things down. He, he, he talks about the four four or five areas that he really wanted to concentrate on. But I just wondered if if there's a if there's a double bluff happening here. But anyway, part, put that to one side for a moment. Do, do hold that thought through the conversation. I'm just going to go into a little bit of the detail, into those areas that he said that it was necessary to build up. So he talked about air superiority, breaching the minefields, increasing the effectiveness of counter-battery fire, that's artillery fire, and also electronic warfare. And number five, the, the reserves. So very quickly, I'm going to whiz through these, the things that, that I've that I literally highlighted and, and um, just want to bring out. So on the need to gain air superiority, he said the armed forces of Ukraine entered the war with 120 tactical aircraft, out of which only 40 were considered to be technically suitable for utilisation. I think that's a nice way of saying only 40 worked. And he said they had 33 medium and short-range anti-air missile battalions, of which only 18 had fully serviceable equipment. So he paints a pretty grim picture. And of course, that hasn't massively increased. They've, they've had some MiG-29s gifted, but not a huge number of other aircraft. And the, the debate about F-16s and, and what have you is still very much very, a, a very live one. But I thought that was quite stunning. He said that, that Russia has lost, and very amusingly, throughout all of this, Russian Federation and Putin are all, are, are none of them are capitalised. Just another little kidney punch there, but anyway. He says the Russian Federation has lost about 13 regiments of army aviation. Aviation typically refers to helicopters as opposed to air, which generally means fighter jets and fixed-wing planes. So aviation, yeah, mainly helicopters. Also, he says Russia's lost 550 pieces of air defence and, despite all that, continues to maintain significant air superiority. As in, they, they, if they want to, now they're risking them infrequently, but if they want to, they would be able to gain or hold air superiority for a short time in across the battlefield. But, he says, they are unable to convert it due to the work that Ukraine has done on, on the air defence. And he says, the enemy does not feel calm in the skies of Ukraine. So what's been happening, rather than risk their air assets and aviation, he says that, that as Ukraine have done, Russia is, is increasingly reliant on unmanned aerial vehicles, so drones that we've spoken about at length. Then on the minefields, he said the depth is tip a typical depth of the minefield is 15 to 20 kilometers, with the whole of that covered by reconnaissance drones. So just going up and down, doing racetrack patterns up and down, looking for Ukrainian attempts to get through it. And he says, so the Arab, he says Ukraine's our obstacle clearing detachment teams are are spotted as soon as they form up and, and, and get going. So the, the reconnaissance drones see them and then can accurately bring fire down. So the minefields are, are a huge problem. It's very interesting. 
come back later as to what, what he thinks they can do about it. But minefields, as we know, the depth of it is just on a scale we've not seen since the Second World War. Counter-battery fire, artillery. Remember Stalin said artillery is the god of war. We know that Russia is a very artillery-led war machine. And General Zeluzny says it varies from 60% to 80%. But that kind of region, artillery makes up that sort of number of the total volume of tasks executed. Again, it might be a bit of a linguistic thing there. But when he says tasks executed, I, I don't know if he means actual firepower. I presume that can only be the real sort of context there. But anyway, I mean, 60 to 80%, that's a huge ratio. So artillery is still the god of war. Zeluzny says the hunt for the enemy's fire. Artillery systems is a priority for both parties. And he went on in a, in a moment of, well, all through this, there's, there's great honesty, I think. He says, we have no right to belittle the importance and capabilities of Russian weapons. It's ISR, that's intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, like the drones and other bits and pieces, and countermeasures or the ability of the military industrial complex to supply troops with a significant number of both outdated and modern weapons and equipment. Now, for their side... He says they were gifted lots of very high-tech stuff, in particular the Excalibur shell, which is a GPS-guided artillery shell. But over time, he said those capabilities have significantly decreased as Russia's electronic warfare systems have, have got to grips with them. So all very well gifting lots of very sophisticated stuff, but if the enemy does adapt in that area, then it, you're, back to, you're back to parity. And he was talking about HIMARS, he said they were forced, because of the, the shifting nature of this battle with technology, he said they were forced to use HIMARS to, to go against artillery systems. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate target anyway for HIMARS, but you'd also want them to be targeting command and control centres, logistic nodes, railheads, all those kind of things. So the more the HIMARS are used just to defeat artillery, as sensible as that is for a military task, it means they're not being used elsewhere. So he says... Uh, currently, we have managed to achieve a notional parity with the numerically prevailing enemy artillery due to a smaller number of high-quality and accurate fires. So smaller number, more sophisticated, but parity. And you never want parity on the battlefield. That You're not going to win with parity. Reserves, he's talking about uh, how Russia's avoiding general mobilization, seeking to avoid or evade uh, conscription. Another, We saw how un unwelcome that partial mobilization was last year. But he says Ukraine has the limited capability to train their own reserves on their territory because there's a war on. And, they, and he points to gaps in legislation, which means that some people of military age are able to, to not, um, not, be, not be called up or, or have an easy way of not serving. So he's, he's, that's, this is one very brief foray into politics, as you'd expect from a, a general. But I thought that was interesting, the legislation side. Electronic warfare, he said the enemy is... So Russia has adapted... Sorry, adopted about 60 different types and almost the entire fleet of obviously equipment has been updated. He says that they, Russia has a, continues to maintain a significant electronic warfare superiority. And he says, again, but with a smaller number of sophisticated systems, they have, again, achieved parity in electronic warfare. And then how to, what to do about it. He talks about for air superiority, simulty calls for simultaneous mass use of cheap drones. He calls for the capability to hunt down enemy drones. He calls for the mass use of electronic warfare. He calls for the mass use, building up local GPS fields for counter-battery fire to get through that problem of, of being drowned out. He calls for, in terms of mine breaching, 
uh, jet engines of decommissioned aircraft, water monitors, i.e. water water cannons, um, uh, cluster munitions, rapid burrowing robots, which I thought was quite interesting. And then about uh, the need to increase the capabilities for conducting electronic warfare from drones. So all in all, what he was saying there, just to finish up with, what I think he was saying there was he was talking about concentration of force. Now, in the British military, there are 10 principles of war in no particular order, except the first one, which has to take primacy, and that is selection and maintenance of the aim. You've always got to keep in mind what you're doing it for. Everything drives towards that. But all the others can be in in a different order. So you've got maintenance of morale, offensive spirit, surprise security, flexibility, administration, concentration of force, coordination and economy of effort. But of those, of all those, well, those other nine, the subordinate principles, if you like, I saw concentration of force absolutely singing out throughout this essay. And I thought that's obviously not to be, you're not able to do that across the whole line all of the time, but to, to have enough systems in place to be able to punch through in certain areas of the front. And what he's clearly saying is that even now, with all the gifts they have, and he says they've got parity in EW and artillery and what have you, but they're still not able to group all their strength together for a short time and space and overwhelm the Russian resistance. So I thought that that concentration of force element was very important. I'll be interested in, in Hamish's views about what was not in there. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Hamish to Breton Gordon. I'll try not to cover any of the ground that has already been done, but I think this is a hugely important essay. Had it been written by the chief of the Imperial General Staff in 1917, Stand Fast, Bits on Technology and ECM, um, I don't think it would be greatly different. I agree that perhaps this is just the tip of the iceberg and perhaps what is under the sea, as it were, is of equal significance. And the timing as well. I I think everybody's focusing timing as in Gaza and what is happening there. But I think the general is probably more looking towards next year with all that's happening and your articulation of the spook conversation to the European um, uh, politician earlier on really sings to that, the, uh, the thought that perhaps there is this people are starting to think whether continuing to supply Ukraine with hardware and intelligence is really the best way forward. So I think you put all that together and it, it is a fascinating uh, essay and a sort of um, look of exactly what is happening uh, at the moment. I'm going to briefly come into some of these areas, but I, th- I suppose the, the area that struck me that we haven't really spoken about a great deal is the reserves and the technology piece. I quite agree with the air power bit, and I suppose that they're hoping that the F-16s that are now training on, that will be the beginning, because it's, it strikes me in this war, at each t- it's a balance of capabilities. Now, in one area, say Ukraine has an advantage, but then that's countered by another area where Russia has an advantage. And, and because of that, you reach this stalemate or trench warfare, as we'd understand using the First World War vernacular. And air power is, I think, absolutely key to this. I'm fascinated by the significance of the unmanned aerial vehicles and the massing of UAVs to really obliterate up the other side's intelligence gathering capability so you can get through. And I think this idea that the electronic warfare element where 
you know, the precision guided weapons that were so successful to begin with are now being countered by this electronic deception, if you like, hugely important. I think on the mines front, again, it's this is real First World War stuff, but 20 metre deep minefield, 20 kilometre deep minefields over such a vast area. And what's been explained is as the Ukrainian armoured forces break into those minefields, those minefields are then replaced with automatically launched mines. So you get a little foothold, you take a breath, and then that's covered up. The artillery piece said that thus, but I, I was quite surprised to see that the general saying that 68-80% of the activity is artillery and counter-battery fire. But to me, the significance of the artillery is actually a lot of it is turned into precision art, precision strikes because of that. The counter in the essay saying actually the traditional sort of dumb artillery, if you like, the area artillery, the D-40s, etc., just firing high explosive, that still has a place. And that's a game where the Russians have the advantage. Uh, and I should have said at the beginning that the other thing about timing is the Ukrainians are really worried that the Russian ability to reconstitute and if the West is not supplying the hardware and the ammunition into next year, Russia probably will be able to get the advantage in that. I'd just like to come on to the reserves and the technical innovation that is covered in this, which, are, again, I think is hugely important. The, on the military, on the, on the manpower, the soldiers in the front, basically Russia seems to generate about times three the amount. And we only heard last week a piece in the paper about 300,000 Russian dead, which I might come back to. But it recognised that actually Russia is putting barely trained conscripts into the field. So that their ability to do anything except fire a rifle, probably not very accurately, that's about all they are. But again, despite the fact that Putin won't go for widespread uh, mobilisation, they still seem to be able to generate this manpower. And only earlier on this week, talking about tens of thousands of criminals broken out of jails um, to, to, to go and fight. You know, the, the sort of thing that the Russians can do, but nobody else could do. I think thought it was telling that what one of the challenges in training Ukrainian recruits is that they can't really do it in Ukraine because as soon as as soon as they get develop a training area, the Russians know about it and start attacking it. And to me, that was a bit of a call to the West, perhaps more to the sort of continental Europeans and ourselves that actually we or the West needs to help more on that training of not just the high tech, the fighter pilots, the helicopter pilots, etc., but actually the soldiers on the ground. And when it comes on to the technical side, uh, you know, he says towards the end and in various parts that we need some new technology. That's going to break the stalemate. Uh, and that sort of made me think back to the well, history of the First World War and the Second World War. And if we think, what were the key technological advantages in the First World War that made a difference? Well, the first one, which is something I've been steeped in, I suppose, is gas. It was it was the use of, of gas, chemical weapons in Ypres in 1915 that made a demonstrative difference, but it was very quickly countered. And God forbid, gas has not been used a great deal since. Then, 16 and really 1917, it was a tank that made the significant difference, and that was countered. I mean, 
I find it not strange, but I, it is a fact that actually the tank action in Combray in November 1917 is very similar to the tank action that, that we're seeing in, in Ukraine at the moment. Dare I say the other technological advance, technological big step forward that made a huge difference was, of course, the atomic bomb uh, at the end of the Second World War. And I don't think anybody is talking uh, about that. So I think with, with without rehearsing all the arguments that have already been mentioned, I, this is, I think there is a lot more to this. I think it is a very honest lay down of where the higher command in Ukraine think they they are. I am sure there is some some Maskarovka in here as well. And I suppose for, on the political level, the key thing is an absolute wake-up call to the West. If you completely focus on the Middle East, if we lose in, in, in Ukraine, then quite things are going to be that much, much worse. And the only thing, there's an awful lot of comparisons going on at the moment between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in, in Gaza. But the scale is absolutely completely different. It, Gaza is, is 20 odd miles long and a few miles wide. But the concentration of force that Don was talking about, I, I think very interesting that the amount of forces that are going to be or being potentially used to Gaza, absolutely huge. And then the amount of forces arrayed across this massive line of attack in Ukraine is, we, we thought that it was very dense and all the rest of it, but actually it's a completely different type of warfare. We have a traditional state-on-state warfare against insurgency terrorist type things. So I am sure that the people who replaced Dom and I in the in the MOD are poring over this in Whitehall and uh, at, at the Defence Academy now elsewhere, and I hope they are. And I'm sure the same is happening in the US. But I, I, this is probably the beginning of the discussion, rather than a sort of a final throwdown to the West to make sure that we keep the spirit and keep supporting Ukraine. Thank you very much, all of you, for your analysis and thoughts there. Let's stay on this just a little bit more. Dom, did you mention that you wanted to talk a little bit about what this essay and these stories don't contain? Well, yeah. I mean, I mentioned the tanks uh, thing there. Also, there's no talk at all of the of the uh, a very tangential reference, if you like, to morale. No talk of, of the partisan activity slash whatever it is, special forces activity in Crimea and in Russia uh, in Russia itself, Belgorod region, what have you, no mention of Belarus or those kind of the importance of allies on on either side. So again, maybe he was trying to just keep this down to four good points that we could all keep in our heads or five good points. There you go, forgotten one already. Or, or maybe there was, he was deliberately not talking about these things, but I thought it was quite telling. It comes back to who, who's the audience for this and why release it. I don't think it was rushed out because we've been in discussions with some some of the officials in in Kiev. We heard got wind of this, so I think it's been around for a little while. But it is interesting that it's come out in the same week as Georgia Maloney's comments. But then she's not voicing a new concern with him. Been a lot of chat about war fatigue, but I thought it was quite telling that that it did come out in the same week. But yeah, the lack of any kind of talk about morale really and and that and the activity inside Russia the debate about whether or not Ukraine should be able to 
use gifted weapons inside Russia, those kind of things. Maybe they were a bit too political. Maybe he just decided to stay away from that and get down and dirty in the trenches, so to speak. But there were a few things there. But like I say, it was a long essay already. Maybe it was just a, a time thing and wanting to wanting us to all go away with a very clear idea of where they're where he's positioning it. And and I will come back in, in my final thoughts in what I think the key takeaway from this is. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Hamish. Francis, can we go to you just quickly? I mean, Hamish was talking there, talked us through some of the developments, the technological developments he saw in the First World War, since that's the conflict that Zeluzhny is alluding to here. Just a quote from the Economist interview. He, they have Zeluzhny saying, it is important to understand that this war cannot be won with weapons of the past generation and outdated methods. They will inevitably lead to delay and as a consequence, defeat. And instead, the Economist writes, technology will be decisive. Francis, you, I know you've had some thoughts around the history of all of this. Uh, can you talk us through them? Sure. You made it sound a bit like there that Hamish had fought in the First World War himself. <laughs> but I do have a few thoughts he on did. this. Uh, he did, maybe he did. <laughs> Sorry, Hamish. But no, I think Hamish is right to, to, to pick talk about some of the developments that did change the landscape strategically in the First World War. He mentioned gas. He mentioned tanks. Another, of course, vitally important one was the development of the rolling barrage. So that the disasters that were seen at the Battle of the Somme, where you had the artillery firing and then having a delay before soldiers went over the top. That strategy over the course of the war evolved to the point that soldiers were not able to come out of the trenches and shoot back, as it were, as effectively. That was important. But I'm really glad that Dom mentioned morale because literally I've got written in front of me here in big capital letters a note that I made, which is about morale, because I found it very interesting that that wasn't mentioned. And if we're talking in the First World War context, it is vital, I think, to remember Two elements that played also a pivotal role in the end, which was the logistics side of things, which, of course, is something that Zhuzhny um, uh, talks about in the essay, the, this vital uh, element of making sure they can have continued logistics support. That was absolutely essential in the First World War and something that, of course, with the Americans entering the war in 1917, really did play to the Allies' advantage. But morale, I think, is crucial here. And it was crucial in the First World War because what one saw by 1918 was the extent to which soldiers that were very reluctant to surrender to the Allies in 1914-1915 were all the more willing to do so in 1918. And there were multiple reasons for that. One was because they've, of course, been fighting in the most horrific conditions for so many years. But another was that there were deliberate policies that were adopted by the Allies to make it quite an encouraging thought to surrender to the Allies. They looked after the soldiers previous myths about soldiers being executed on scale were dismissed, etc. And so morale was hugely important following the failure of the spring offensive by um, the Germans uh, in 1918, when basically there was a huge realisation within the German forces that they were not going to be able to have this decisive breakthrough in the manner that they hoped. And there was a huge slump and then you had mass surrenders. So morale was hugely important to this too. And I think morale will prove also vitally important in the war in Ukraine. We cite this often, but it is important to remember that Ukrainians remain absolutely committed to victory as they articulated at present, which is removing all of Russian soldiers from the land and including Crimea. There has not been a huge shifts in that. Uh, I think the latest poll still had 80% of Ukrainians believing in that vision as articulated by Zelensky. And if you compare what we know about morale in the Russian armed forces compared to the Ukrainians, it is also a great disparity. The Ukrainians do still, despite 
obviously extremely challenging conditions in the counteroffensive, morale is still believed to be much higher there. And as we've talked about many times, morale is also a critical factor in uh, military success. And so I think the un, that not being discussed, I think, is an absence in the essay, but it may well be a deliberate one. And just one final thought, since we're talking about this idea of technological developments that can be game changers, it is also worth remembering that there have been instances where there have been investments in wonder weapons that have not been those game changers. It was a core priority of Hitler's in the end of the Second World War to invest in wonder weapons, advanced missile technology, etc. And it didn't pay off. And it may not have paid off. At the end of the day, what won the war were issues around morale, logistics and strategic initiative. And so a lot to unpack here. But if we're talking about it in a historical context, I'd say there is evidence to be perhaps slightly more optimistic than the pessimistic picture that's been painted in the narratives lately. Well, thank you very much, Francis. We're starting to run short of time here. So can I ask for any final thoughts on this document or any further updates uh, that we should be aware of from Dom, Francis or Hamish? Just one very quick one for me, just to riff off Francis's point there about wonder weapons. And General Zeluzny throughout this is talking about a need for a big technological leap. And I'd, he might not be pointing at it directly. I doubt it. But I just wondered if he talks about drones a lot, particularly the reconnaissance drones doing those, as I described, the racetrack circuits. He didn't describe that's how I envisaged these things would be working, just going up and down the line, looking for Ukrainian armor massing or Ukrainian mine breaching equipment massing and personnel massing. That drone then, through clever technological stuff, which I'd have to take my shoes off to try and work out how it all works, but basically works out the 10 or 12-figure grid of where those personnel, the armour, what have you, is massing, and sends that back to the artillery, who then put that grid reference in their computers and fire on that location. I'm paraphrasing because basically I don't understand how it all works, but that's essentially it, right? Now, how does the drone know that? The drone gets all that information and is able to relay it Usually, I mean, you can use RF, radio frequency, you can radio waves, but normally these things are beyond the range of radio and they're getting very accurate grid references because of the use of satellites. And I just wonder if a capability, a military capability that's been talked about more and more in the last 20-odd years, certainly the last 10 years or so, it's anti-satellite technology, the ability and the means to actually bring down an opponent's satellite, destroy it in space. Now, we know that Russia has done some tests. They destroyed one of their own satellites. We think the Chinese have done similarly. They've used various munitions or other, other devices. I think the Russians in 2018 drove one of their own redundant satellites into another one as part of a test. Now, this is hugely controversial and is against the, against the sort of good use of space because the amount of debris that's left up there that then flies around at incredible speeds and potentially smashes into everything else. But it is, a, it is an increase, increasingly talked about as a military capability. So if on day one of the war you take down the enemy's satellites, they will not be able to, even if they can see the stuff that's massing at that point, not the, no, not that tree, the other one, the, the, yeah, that one, by the small building. Yeah, right, what's the grid reference there? No idea, mate, no idea. I can't, I can't work out the grid reference of that because I've lost the capability via satellite. I just wonder, I'm rambling a little bit, for which I apologise, but I just wonder if a, if a leap might be for Ukraine seeking some form of anti-satellite capability. That would be hugely controversial globally, but denying Russia the ability to to work out the, all the various locations and grids and every other military capability satellites offer would be a, a massive 
you'd get a head start. It's not a technological leap forward, but you're taking the enemy back. One possibly to to either think about momentarily and chuck out the window or for us to discuss further in the future. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Hamish. Let's move then, I think, to our final thoughts, unless there are any further updates. Francis Sternley, would you like to go first? Thanks, David. We didn't mention the Russian reaction to the document, which is pretty extraordinary. So the Kremlin have come out, our old friend Dmitry Peskov, and he's denied the picture painted by the Ukrainians despite its pessimism, saying that Moscow doesn't recognise the picture of stalemate. And he went on and emphasised that the lines are not static and that the armed forces will achieve the aims that they've set themselves. It's a stark reminder, I think, that we need to seriously question this assumption that has become commonplace, that Moscow has realistically conceded their ambitions to take over the whole of Ukraine. They have never said that publicly and they remain committed to their maximalist aims. Western leaders need to bear that in mind when they're making decisions about the future of this war and the support that they provide to Kyiv. This idea that it is effectively over and frozen as things remain at the moment is, I would argue, simply not true, not by a long shot. And so for as long as Moscow is willing to say those kind of remarks, we need to keep that very much at the forefront of our minds. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols. Yeah, my final thought is on what this document is and absolutely stands in contrast, as Francis just said, about Dmitry Peskov's comments there about, no, everything's fine, it's all moving forward, blah, 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 which is rubbish. Now, again, put to one side at the moment the idea of, is this true? Is this all some sort of super double secret bluff? What, Even if it is, what this document does is it invites... Ukrainians to do a lot of soul searching here. It invites Ukrainians and us and everyone else to think, well, yeah, how are they doing? And oh, parity, that's not good. Have they got parity? Do I believe that? It invites a lot of questions about Ukraine's capability and in the context, as I mentioned earlier, about the, the willingness of the partner nations to keep them in there. So I think what this, or help keep them in there, I should say, I think this is a very honest document. And I think what it says is it, you've got to be honest with yourself. I think Zaluzny is saying, that, yeah, the counteroffensive has gone. I think he says 17, 17 kilometres, obviously nowhere near what they were hoping for. I mean, this is it's quite bold to to come up and say, yeah, it's not gone. It's not gone brilliantly, fellas. We were kind of hoping for a lot more, and, and here's why we think it is. We think we're we think we got parity here. We think we're behind there. We credit them, the Russians, with being good at doing that. The X, Y, and Z. So I think it speaks of a much more honest soul than we see from the likes of Peskov and the Russians. And you, as we all know in life, if you're not honest with yourself about yourself, then you ultimately come unstuck in, in, in some form or other at some place. Now, you might not lose a war by not being honest with yourself, just lying all your way to the finish line, but you're certainly not going to win it. If you're not honest with yourself about your failings and your weaknesses – then I think that you are nowhere near to addressing those concerns. And so I think running through this doesn't say it as such, but I wouldn't expect any major operations this side of spring next year. I think the document pretty much says that. I think what he's saying is we need to take a step back and consolidate what we got, have a think about where we're going from here, train over the winter, come back next spring. So I wouldn't expect any more major efforts in down south, for example, in the salient that they've that they've built. I don't think they're going to reach top Mac by, by the end of the year. 
But I do think this is a, it speaks of the character of the of General Zeluzny and the Ukrainian people to, to entrust a document like this and these thoughts to your people to say, let's have an honest chat about who we are and how good we are and where we're falling down. I think that was very interesting. And the comment about the legislation saying some people who are currently exempt from being mobilised or being conscripted or being expected to go and do their bit, those protections are going to be removed. That's going to take a hit on morale, I would have thought. But if you are... If you if the if the deal is strong enough, if you're able to have an honest conversation, then that that might land better. So I think it, it speaks of the character of the man and the character of the people, and equally Russia's response to it. In those words from Peskov, and there'll be others. I think absolutely speaks of the character from Moscow as well. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Hey, Mr. Bratton Gordon. Again, I, I don't want to cover any ground that's already been done. I, d- I did look a bit about casualty rates before earlier on today. And significant, we're talking about the First World War and the millions and millions of casualties there. And then there was a very steeply falling curve over the next sort of century, 100 years on casualty rates in warfare. Um, interesting, looking at Vietnam, the Americans lost 58,000 soldiers, um, about 500 tanks. Tanks weren't hugely significant. Viet Cong, lost a million dead. Then go to the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, which lasted sort of nine or so years, which casualty rates more akin to what we're seeing in Ukraine. Both sides, Iran-Iraq, both sides lost about half a million dead. Again, not a huge amount of tank sort of action, but several hundred on each side. We then look at the wars that, that the Iraq and, and Afghan wars that Britain w- was involved in in Afghanistan, the, the sort of 10 years or plus that we were involved there, Britain lost and 52 soldiers. So on a different scale, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, the 10 years they were there, they lost about 16,000 soldiers. So when we come back to Ukraine, where 300,000 Russians have been killed, allegedly, although this paper talks about 150,000 and about 5,000 Russian tanks. Again, these are industrial numbers without wanting to you know, desanitize it, as it were. So I think it's it just strikes me that the uh, analysis towards the First World War are, are not that off the mark. And I wonder what this technology is that is going to unlock this. I agree with Dom, satellites. I just wonder what else it's going to do to break through this. But I do agree with with you guys that this is not an isolated piece here. I think there is other things to come and one will watch that with great interest. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, 
please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Today's episode was produced by Elliot Lampett.